0: Hello all and welcome again to this special season of Trees A Crowd. Let's plunge straight in this week with what, having grasped the wrong end of the humour branch, the spectator called a rather naff jingle. Sorry, Bella. Needless to say, here at Trees A Crowd, we wear our naff mantle with pride. the secrets and stories beneath the 56 native trees of the British. So this week we marked the halfway point. We are 20 episodes in with 20-ish more to go. And this week we are looking at tree 31. Sea Buckthorn. Sea Buckthorn. Hippophay rhamnoides. As its name suggests, like last week's common buckthorn and the hawthorn from a month or so ago and the blackthorn from before that, our sea buckthorn has, you've guessed it, Thorns. It grows thick and it grows dense and it possesses genuinely quite brutal spines. This makes the plant particularly good at providing scrubby refuge for nesting birds, which is especially apparent all along our coastlines where the sea buckthorn's ability to thrive in high salt soils comes into its own and is why it is known as the sea buckthorn. In these exposed, salty habitats, sea buckthorn grows as a prostrate shrub, but when more protected from the elements, it can grow to about 11 metres in height, taller than either of last week's two unrelated buckthorns, and more than double the height, to meet my rather arbitrary requirement for native trees to reach at least 5 metres. Now, the sea buckthorn has long, silvery leaves, due to a coating of unusual star-like hairs on both the upper and the lower surfaces of the leaf. And it also possesses a wonderfully vibrant, tasty orange fruit. But more on that in a bit. Now, the eagle-eared amongst you will remember this tree from last season, when the young naturalist Dara McAnulty showed me around his stomping grounds in the shadows of the Mountains of Morn. You could actually see one of the big problems that the National Trust has been facing with this reserve, mm-hmm. and that's that plant down there. And it's called sea buckthorn. OK. And the problem with this plant here is that it just gets everywhere. It stops any sort of shrubbery or any new life from emerging underneath it. Uh And it just blankets over an entire area. It's fair to say that Dara wasn't a massive fan of this plant. And in situ at the National Trust-owned Murloc National Nature Reserve, it is easy to see why the national trust is three years into a five-year project to remove the sea buckthorn from this part of the coast because although native to britain sea buckthorn is not native to ireland it was introduced to this particular part of the northern irish coastline by the downshire family in the 1890s to help stabilize the rapidly disappearing sand dunes this is because sea buckthorn possesses an incredibly rapid vegetative spread By which I mean, its roots grow quick, its roots grow deep, and its roots grow long, and as a consequence, it has an immense soil-binding ability. Writing back in 1904, Irish naturalist Nathaniel Colgan, in his Flora of County Dublin, says, Here its far-creeping roots serve as a binder of the sandy shelter dykes, as it does of the shifting sand bluffs by the Coast Guard station. And from these centres of distribution... The plant will doubtless in time spread wildly over the uncultivated part of the dunes. But as a result of a storm, the roots of several mature plants were found laid bare along the sea face of the dunes here in 1902. Some of these roots, belonging to plants only three feet high, were found to measure fully 16 feet in length. And at Murloc, the sea buckthorn did exactly as hoped. As planned, it succeeded spectacularly in stopping coastal erosion, but at a cost. As noted by Dara, it has formed a dense thicket that prohibits the growth of any other native sand dune species, species that could, under normal conditions, do a similar job. In fact, the only other thing that currently grows here on this peninsula is sycamore trees. And as you'll discover in a future episode, unfortunately, they're not native either. It's worth noting here that invasiveness is not just a prerogative of alien species. Some of our own native species can also be viewed as invasive in their homeland. Examples include bracken in heathland, brambles in forests, and thistles in my own back garden. But in terms of the sea buckthorn, what has changed? How have they become so aggressively invasive? Well, it is the view of most experts in the field that the invasive behaviour of sea buckthorn is a result... As always, of man, interfering with the balance of nature. 2,000 years ago, large herbivores would have roamed freely and crashed their way through buckthorn thickets, munching as they went. Historic dune systems would have been extensive and dynamic, Some thickets of buckthorn would have been broken up in this way, giving way to open dunes while other areas of bare sand would be colonised further in turn by other dune plant species. Nothing says biodiversity, harmony, balance, equilibrium, like a large free-roaming, thrashing herbivore. And smaller herbivores are also at play here too. As recently as the 80s and 90s, the sea buckthorn stands on the dunes at Sandwich Bay in Kent were subject to an annual heavy grazing by immense numbers of caterpillars of the brown tail moth. Stripped of its leaves each spring and summer, the buckthorn would miraculously survive this annual onslaught, but it would be contained. Skip forward 30 years to today and a mix of pesticides, the changes associated with global warming and other concerns mean the brown tail moth is not present in the numbers they once were. And as such, the sea buckthorn is left to grow and Sandwich Bay is at the mercy, not from an invasive alien, rather a native invasion from within. It is a faultless botanical coup d'etat. But, truth be told, without sea buckthorn, we might not have any trees at all, which would have made this podcast much shorter. Sea buckthorn was one of the very first species that returned to Britain after the last ice age. It arrived alongside the dwarf birch and a number of low growing willows, none of which make the podcast list of 56 ish species because they just don't grow tall enough. This is a podcast about trees, not shrubs. Perhaps that's season four. Perhaps not. Anyway, cast your mind back 12,000-ish years. The British Isles are cold, very, very cold. The ice has just thawed and the newly exposed tundra soils are composed simply of rock debris, of boulders, of sands, silt and dust. The land is devoid of any available nutrients. But the sun is shining brightly, there is water everywhere, glistening puddles of crystal-clear glacier and seawater, and the atmosphere is rich with carbon dioxide and full of nitrogen, the building blocks of life. After carbon, nitrogen is the second most important ingredient for life on Earth. It makes up around 80% of our atmosphere. But in its gaseous form, however abundant, it is not accessible to plants. So how do plants get their mitts on it? Simple answer, they have a friend. Special kinds of bacteria absorb atmospheric nitrogen from air pockets in the soil, and some of these, living in mutual harmony in the roots of plants, kindly convert the nitrogen into ammonia in exchange for sugars, enabling the plants to grow big and to grow strong. Now this is a process known as nitrogen fixing. The most notorious nitrogen fixing plants are members of the legume family. They have a strong relationship with a bacterium called rhizobium. You may remember at school being taught about the agricultural revolution, about allowing fields to grow fallow or to practice crop rotation. Well, if you do, you'll remember that there would be a year where clover, peas, beans or another legume, alongside its symbiotic rhizobium bacteria, would be planted instead of the main crop. This is, was, to get the nitrogen back into the ground to fertilise the soil naturally. Now there are tree legumes, the tropical rainforests are full of them, but we have none of them here on the British Isles. What we do have, however, are two trees that have taken up with another obliging bacterium, a bacterium genus called Frankia, and sea buckthorn is one of Frankia's friends. So when sea buckthorn arrived in Britain, shortly after the seas thawed and ice retreated, it arrived as a plant that could not only withstand extremely low temperatures, not only cope with high salinity soil, but it also had frankia in its back pocket. Frankia provided it with vital nourishment, enabling its roots to spread rapidly in a harsh, boulder-strewn landscape. Now, as the soils dried out, Arctic winds created dust and sandstorms, but where sea buckthorn had a grasp, it rapidly bound the soil together, reduced wind erosion, released nitrogen-rich ammonia, and created a stable terrain for many other plants to grow. Recent research on other Francia symbioses also shows us that the bacteria provided more than enough nitrogen for the host plant's immediate needs and converted the excess into nitric acid. This acid is then extruded by the roots into the surrounding soil where it helps in the weathering of the bedrock, releasing other important nutrients such as phosphorus. There is almost nothing that it does not do. As such, as the climate slowly warmed, sea buckthorn steadily reshaped the soil of our islands. But, as is usually the case, as conditions improved, other plants took root showing little respect for the hard work achieved by the sea buckthorn pioneers. Eventually overwhelmed by the new shaded forest canopies of birch, hazel, scotch pine, and then oak, beech, lime and elm, sea buckthorn was pushed out to the inhospitable, windswept, shifting sand dunes of our coastlines, where it remains today, picked apart by the National Trust, mourning the disappearance of large free-roaming herbivores and insulted by young Northern Irish naturalists. Right, let's end on a high. Let's talk about the bright orange sea buckthorn berries, which are not berries, rather false fruits. Not unlike the hawthorns, haw, wild pear, crab apple, etc. Now, these not berries are massively energy-packed with sugars. They also have eight times the vitamin C of an orange, pound for pound. They are extremely rich in minerals. Vitamins A and E are omegas 3, 6, 7 and 9 and have been promoted for human consumption as tools for weight loss. Good skin, a healthy heart, a clean gut, blah, blah, blah. The list goes on. On our coastlines, they provide a hugely welcome winter feast for long-distance migrant birds, which have battled their way to Britain above storm-tossed seas. But, far more importantly than that, I once ate a sea buckthorn sorbet, back when restaurant dining was a thing, and like the tree's relationship with the bacterium frankia, the sea buckthorn sorbet was living in perfect symbiosis, neatly dolloped atop a creme brulee. Now take my word for it, the berries, especially in their sorbet form, have a taste that is citric, sharp, entirely pleasant, and humans have known about all of sea buckthorn's virtues for centuries. In fact, Genghis Khan is said to have fed his armies upon the things, although perhaps that's not the best recommendation for a new superfood, and they've certainly not chosen to mention that on the label in my local health food shop. Anyway... You'll not be surprised to hear that the ancient Greeks knew of the plant's value too. Lord knows they had, slash, have enough coastlines growing the stuff. But the legend suggests that the discovery of the plant's virtues came about entirely by accident. It is said that an indeterminate number of mangy old horses were hoofed out one day. The Greeks had got tired of the horse's matted manes and incessant geriatric whinnying. But much to the Greeks' surprise, after a few days, the horses returned to the stables with a new lease of life, a genuine spring in their step, and a shining, bright coat. Upon investigation, the horses, free to roam, had wandered down to the coastline and chowed down on sea buckthorn knot berries. From that day forth, Grecian horses were fed sea buckthorn berries to help them gain muscle mass and to attain a gleaming coat. Myth says that it is these orange knot berries that gave Pegasus the ability to fly. And it is for this reason that the sea buckthorn's scientific name is Hippophae, which means shining horse. And that's that. Thank you to Gavin Dray for embodying a 19th century Irish naturalist and thank you to Dara McAnulty for allowing me to recycle part of my interview with him from last year and thank you to my botanist great-aunt Ros for her immense expertise in helping me put this and indeed all of these episodes together. Next week, it is the start of the elms, a great tree, one which is very, very dear to me. So, see you all then. Goodbye for now. Okay and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British.